Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode one of the Thesis Driven podcast and video series. I'm Brad Hargraves, your host, the editor of Thesis Driven. One thing that regular Thesis Driven writers will know is that we are really interested in new models of financing real estate innovation and development. Over the past 15 years, you've seen a lot of really novel models in the tech world emerge to fund new ideas. Things like Y Combinator, for instance, as a way to get entrepreneurs exposure to investors and that initial little bit of capital they need to set them on their way. You've also seen funds of various stages and sizes, incubator programs, educational programs to get people starting new businesses down a venture track. Now, in real estate, you don't have those same dynamics. You don't have those tracks if you want to become a real estate entrepreneur, a real estate developer, creating things in the built world. There's no Y Combinator for real estate developers. There's no tech stars for people who want to create new real estate companies. And what has ended up happening is that many of the entrepreneurs who maybe would love to go down that path, who have a brick and mortar idea to build a new hotel, to build a new apartment brand, to build a new office operating model, instead end up taking venture money, which is not a great fit for them in many cases. So we track really closely concepts that are coming out that are trying to fix this problem. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is Reseed. And we have the founders of Reseed, Rhett Bennett and Moses Kagan, two pretty heavyweight guys in the real estate world on to talk about the model. So what is Reseed? Reseed bills itself as an accelerator program for real estate developers, for real estate operators, for people who want to build their own real estate businesses. But the reality is a little more complicated and honestly, way more interesting. Because the model that Y Combinator uses, we will take a founder in, we will give them a little bit of money, we will take a chunk of equity, and we will introduce them to our roster of investors after a intensive training program that doesn't really work in real estate. You don't have the same startup structure. You don't have 10x, 100x outcomes in real estate. You have projects and projects have a hurdle and you earn fees and you earn a promote over that hurdle. So you need a totally new structure to create something that looks anything like an accelerator for real estate developers. And Rhett and Moses are the first two people to really make a serious and genuine attempt at that. So we're really going to dive into how they did it, how is it shaping up, and oh, by the way, they just wrapped up their first cohort. So we get to hear about the first eight developers who this past summer 
went through Reseed's inaugural cohort. But first, a bit about Moses and Rhett. They are not new to this world. They are both very legitimate and seasoned in their own way. Rhett spent over a decade helping institutional investors, family offices, high net worth individuals invest in real estate, deploy capital, ran a fairly large private equity group. Moses, on the other hand, uh, has been buying apartments through adaptive realty um, for over a decade himself as well. And in addition to what he's doing at adaptive, he's built quite a social media presence for himself uh, with over 100,000 followers on Twitter. And now it's extending that into, guess you could call it media properties. Uh, he launched a really successful conference called Reconvene for real estate developers, for real estate operators that takes place in Los Angeles every September. So really excited to have them both on the show today to talk a little bit about their journeys and this new reseed concept. Let's jump in. Hello, Moses, Rhett, thank you both so much for joining the Thesis Driven podcast and video series. Really excited to have you both here. So, Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So we've heard a little bit about reseed, but I really want to start with the origins and, and why start it? You know, Rhett, maybe I'll start with you. You know, you're a successful investor. You've had a great career in real estate. You know the family office, the investment space very well. You could easily have a successful traditional career. Why start something new and different like Reseed? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, at a very high level, we saw a big market opportunity we felt like the team was uniquely positioned to take advantage of it. And I think we can add a lot of value in operators and investors lives. So that's kind of at the highest level, but maybe if we take a step back or step down when in my last role, I faced a problem. I was trying to deploy a significant amount of capital with like-minded real estate operators that thought about real estate in the way that, that I did. Um, and that we're focused on the sub-institutional space. And that sounds fairly straightforward and fairly simple, but there's a lot of reasons that we could talk about it, why the industry um, really pushes people towards an IRR model as opposed to a long-term model. And so, you know, I sat back and said, okay, I have this problem where I need to deploy a significant amount of capital. How do I do it? And ultimately, Reseed is really mine and Moses and our other partners' response to that problem that I faced as an allocator. So there's a few things you said there I do want to touch on. I want to dig into this question of sub-institutional assets and the problems that these investors face. But Moses, I'm going to ask you the same question. You're you know, a successful operator. You've raised a lot of capital. You have a big social media presence, which I want to talk about later, too. You know, what, why start Reseed? Why do something totally new and different like this? Uh, good question. So uh, one thing to say is uh, that Rhett came to me with the idea and um, mo pr pretty much fully formed. Um, and I was both um, excited about the size of the opportunity and also specifically excited to work with Rhett. And we can talk about why if you want. Um, so that was that, that's kind of the, the background to it. 
Um, another thing to say is that we have had success uh, in our local market because uh, we're experts and we've been focused on it for a really long time. And your local market uh, is Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, yes. Reno specifically buying, renovating, and managing sub-institutional apartment buildings in Los Angeles. And uh, for a variety of reasons, that's a great business. Uh, and we've we've learned a ton from we've renovated 110 buildings. We've learned we've made so many mistakes and learned so much about the right way to do this business. The problem is that the opportunity in Los Angeles is uh, capacity constrained. Uh, there's just like not that many buildings for sale in good neighborhoods at prices that uh, allow you to do the kind of value add that we want to do. And so uh, a problem from my perspective was like I've, I've, we've generated all this knowledge about what to do, but the playing field upon which we're playing is very constrained. And so when Red approached me with the idea of sort of transferring some of that playbook uh, to other operators in other interesting markets, um, that really appealed to me because it was effectively like opening up a whole bunch of additional playing fields across which we can leverage our expertise. Right. So you have this engine that works in Los Angeles. You've got the machine going and it really then becomes, how do you scale this engine to a bunch of other places? And by doing that, create the kind of machine that's going to solve the problem Rhett was talking about for investors. Exactly. And I just, I want to add that, um, I mean, Los Angeles is among the most complicated markets in which to operate in the country, I would say. Um, but operating here has certainly, one lesson that operating here has taught me is the value of boots on the ground and really sort of, I guess, almost like extreme local knowledge about regulations and market and tenant demand and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, because you might ask, like, why didn't we just go start buying stuff in Phoenix or wherever? Um, and the answer is that, I, you know, I know what I know in Los Angeles and therefore I know what I don't know in other markets. So the idea of uh, having local operators who have real skin in the game and are trying to build large independent businesses really resonated with me. So let's talk about your first cohort. So as I mentioned earlier, I wrote a thesis-driven letter, I believe back in May, diving into reseed and looking at a lot of different aspects of it. And that was when you were just about to kick off your first cohort. So really excited to hear an update. How did it go? And what are all the people in your first cohort doing now? I want to, I want Rhett to start answering this question, but I want to say before he does that um, I've had in my career, plenty of journalists write about businesses that I've been involved in. And uh, uh, your piece was more thoughtful and, and better communicated than any piece I've ever read from another journalist. I know that sounds thank like you. Uh, flattery, thank you. but it's the truth. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll echo that sentiment because we often, um, when people, we have inbound interest into our business, we'll send them uh, your write-up as well as the interview that Chris Powers did. Thankful to both of you for that. So uh, how, did the how did the first cohort go? Maybe uh, talk a little bit about the process of how we got to the first cohort, um, and then we can talk about uh, where we are today. So um, as you wrote about, you know, when we started this business, um, it was really a hypothesis, right? So we said, okay, um, we think we can attract talented operating partners 
largely via social media using Moses's brand and kind of 10 years of, of writing about real estate. And on April 4th, um, we tested that hypothesis to see if there really was, you know, product market fit in a way. And so we ended up after 12 hours, I think we had uh, 1,200 people that had expressed an interest in the platform. And then after seven days, we had over 2,000 people that had signed up as saying that they were interested. And so we were, it was very clear that uh, the message that we were delivering and the product that we were trying to put out in the market, there was demand for it. And so from there, um, in the event that you express an interest in Reseed, you received an application to apply to the program. And we ended up with close to 700 people that applied for what ultimately was eight spots. So we had to take uh, those, you know, just under 700. And in some ways, we became a college admissions process, uh, just processing applications. And so, you know, we read every application. We then uh, went and did interviews with a, with, uh, a very large number of potential candidates, we then did case studies uh, with those folks. Ultimately, Moses and I um, spent a lot of time together on the road uh, and we went and visited all of those markets. And we went from you know close to 700 all the way down to eight. So, uh, in the initial I mean, that's a wild process. Like you're, I mean, that is more selective than any college I'm aware of. So what, I mean, what were the initial filters you went through and then kind of how did you make a selection among the finalists? Let me, let me just jump in here and say uh, we owe a, a major uh, debt of gratitude to our co-founders in the business, um, two of whom, uh, uh, Doug and Laura, read every single application first before, wow. uh, before I saw them, certainly. And that was an enormous undertaking, and, and I don't want to minimize I'm sure. That. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, and we should talk about this at some point, but um, Reese is very clear early on that that Moses and I couldn't build this business, just the two of us. And so we, we actually have, you know, there's five of us involved in the business. But um, so back to the question of you know, how did we filter from 700 to eight? Um, we did the application. Um, we had some questions that were pretty straightforward that were designed to filter down to, you know, a smaller number of, of folks. I and mean, we had some things that are simple. You know, have you declared bankruptcy? You know, have you ever, uh, you know, committed fraud? Like all kinds of these simple questions. And then we had um, really the, the deeper questions, which were around asking potential candidates to explain their philosophy. What markets do they want to focus on? What from their previous experience, you know, should give us confidence that they could execute on um, that strategy uh, that they're articulating. And so um, we had like a candidate list of, of questions and potential answers and, and criteria that we we're looking for. But we also had some thoughts around portfolio construction, diversification at the geography level. We also wanted to run some experiments on uh, the type of people and the type of backgrounds. Um, yeah, let me Rhett, maybe if I could jump in here. Um, the from my perspective, one of the big unknowns here is what sort of person would succeed. Right, we're trying to do something that's somewhat unusual. So, like. Who is this person? And from my experience, what I can tell you is 
creating a sub-institutional uh, multifamily real estate business um, requires two very different skill sets. On the one hand, there is a kind of, let's call it like a financing type background, like understanding real estate finance, being able to build a spreadsheet, um, uh, having some experience reviewing um, operating and negotiating operating agreements and loan docs and the kind of like desk work basically that you would learn at a at an established shop. Um, but um, it also requires, for lack of a better word, a bunch of skills that are, I would call scrappiness. Like, okay, you're starting your own firm. Congratulations. You're sitting at a desk with your laptop and a phone. What do you do? Like, like what, what, what should you right. do the first day? Like what, how do you start like spinning up deal flow when no one knows who you are? Yeah. Like, how do you start doing market research when no one knows who you are? Like, you know, how, so, um, so, so, and, and the, those two sort of sets of skills in my experience are like, it's pretty rare to find those two sets of skills in one person. And so, and there's, it's not clear what that's, uh, what that person's background is going to be, whether they'll be coming from an institutional shop, whether they will be a broker, whether they'll be an asset management or property management, like, and so, so anyway, so a big part of our process was sort of trying to get at groups that had those two buckets of skills. Yep. Yeah. The, the, the other thing I'd add is that we actually thought about what skills do we believe that we can teach? And what, what do we know that people have to have in them that are innate? And so we thought a lot about that and that, and that was helpful in figuring out, you know, which, which pile to put folks in. Right. So you filtered down to a pile of finalists and then it was really about, you, you went and met in person and toured the tour deals in the market. I remember you were doing this, I believe when I was scheduling our conversations for the thesis driven letter you were going and visiting all these different entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's right. The first time I read the, uh, the article, I was on a, on a flight uh, from a market visit. But yeah, we, Moses and I, we visited every market um, that where our, our operators were potentially going to be. Um, you know, and by that time, we had had a pretty good sense of uh, the candidates and the probability that they would be a good fit because we had you know, taken, um, spent a lot of time with them, but it really, in real estate at the end of the day, you know, our thesis is this is a hyper-local business. And so we needed a lot of the markets we had been in, some of the markets we had not actually been to in the past. And so we needed to see the operator and see the market and just spend time with them. That's awesome. And what are you, when you go to the market, what are you looking for exactly? I mean, do you walk a value-add deal together and, you know, poke at the uh, HVAC? I mean, uh, that would be nice. In real life, uh, it's a little challenging to do that. Um, uh, there's a couple of things we're looking for. And it, um, it, one is a sense of the market. And I'll talk about what, what, what that is. But it's also a sense for the operator's sense of the market, if that makes sense, right? right. <laughs> um, uh, and so, so we're looking. One thing to say is that we don't think of these markets um, as monoliths. In other words, like it, I don't think that it's useful to talk about DFW. Right. Like there's all these statistics and all this stuff about DFW. And DFW, just like every other, you know, uh, urban area in the country is a mix of a whole bunch of different local little micro markets, some of which are 
totally uninteresting from our perspective, primarily because they don't have supply constraints. And we, we talk about what, why that is. Um, and some of which are highly interesting because they, they, because they have severe supply constraints and a lot of demand. Um, so one thing we were doing was going to these markets and kind of saying, okay, um, what are the local micro markets that you're interested in seeing, in, in showing us, in, uh, in, in investing in, and why? Um, and that uh, was helpful both because it uh, gave us a sense for the micro markets, but also because it helped us to understand how the operators were thinking about why those micro markets were attractive. Right. Makes sense. What is their thought process? How do they think through this? Can they answer eventually a, an LP's question on why do you believe in this neighborhood? Exactly. Why do you believe in this site? Exactly. And, and I, you know, from my own experience in Los Angeles, um, first of all, I am not enough of an expert in Los Angeles to be able to like invest willy nilly across even just Los Angeles, right? Like, but in the neighborhoods we know, I can give you really, um, really concrete tenant profiles. I know what the tenants look like. And, um, and, and, and because of that, I know what kind of buildings you want to create. And obviously, um, when you're doing value add, uh, you don't, you're not starting with from a blank sheet of paper the way you are when you're doing ground up, but, when you're doing very significant value add, there's all kinds of choices that you can make that uh, either reflect the demand or do not. Right. And so what we're sort of, one of the things we were testing for is like, okay, you've identified these mar these micro markets that are interesting and explain to us why they're interesting. Okay, do you then, can you take the next step and tell us like who, you know, what's the demand? What sort of buildings do you want to own there and why? Right. So let's go back to, a question I asked a few minutes ago, which is, tell us about this summer program. So great, you vetted these entrepreneurs, you understand them, you, they understand their markets. So what is this summer program? Yeah, so we brought uh, the eight operating, and it, it's really groups. We talk about operating partners, but in this case, you have uh, eight businesses, five of which already existed before Reseed. Uh, and three of those eight are partnerships and then five are single, uh, single partners. And so uh, what is the summer program? What we're trying to do is a part of our what we believe is the value proposition is that if we create a community of like minded investors, um, they're going to be able to learn from each other. They're going to be able to learn from us and they're going to be able to learn from our investors. And so the first week in person, in Boulder, was really around trying to kind of hit those three areas. So, um, and one of the things that Moses and I originally thought is that the group would be less experienced than the folks that showed up hmm. in the program. So we originally thought the first week may be more kind of fundamental, you know, blocking, tackling around real estate. But the reality is this group was more senior than, than we expected. And so a lot of it was about introducing each one of them to their other, to the, to the cohort, um, and then spending some specific time around kind of the fundamentals of real estate and the way that Reseed looks at, at deals, and then ultimately introducing them to some of our anchor investors. And I want to jump in here and say uh, the way that I think about it is sort of um, us attempting to, or beginning the process of socializing them into how Reseed thinks about real estate. 
which is very different from how uh, I think your like normal syndicator or real estate private equity firm thinks about real estate. Um, and I don't know if we, how uh, how far we want to get into this at this moment. I do I do want to spend maybe a moment on it because I do think it's very important, especially before we get into talking about the capital markets and the capital market strategy here. Um, and it is very differentiated from what you hear a lot of other GPs who get on podcasts talking about. Um, so I would love uh, for you to maybe spend a minute and talk a bit about that capital markets uh, yeah, strategy so, and approach. Yeah, I'll start. And then obviously, uh, hopefully, Rhett will chime in. Um, let me start out by saying, um, by describing a kind of the more standard practice and then why what we're doing is different. So as you know, um, the normal real estate private equity or syndicator model is totally IRR driven. It's like, which, you know, it's, it's like, uh, and it's, it's like, how quickly can you buy the thing, lipstick it and sell it and with maximum debt, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, that's the IRR maximizing model. And, um, for various reasons, uh, you know, I can, I can, we could have a whole podcast about why I think that that is misguided, uh, particularly from the perspective of, um, the kind of high net worth and uh, family office investors who who often back sub institutional operators. It's just like, I, I mean, just to, just to, to begin with, like IRR is a pre tax number. So like right away, if you're a tax paying investor, it's like, what are you doing? Like that that just can't be. That. And and then if you start to think about long term compounding and the risks of redeployment and on and on and transaction costs and on and on and on, we could. Uh, Your investors don't want to flip. They're not flippers. Yeah, they're not. I mean, and then this is this. I think uh, uh, grows out of some specific circumstances in Southern California over the last, you know, whatever it is, seventy-five years or more, which is that the more real estate that people in Southern California bought and didn't sell, the richer they are. And there's just like a bunch of. And it's, it's actually it's really funny in Los Angeles because it's such a fragmented market and the, and the asset size is so small because of the zoning. Like we have a lot of small apartment buildings here, and there are just these families. Everywhere you turn, there are these families that own two or three thousand apartments that started with one and then bought another one. And they don't have outside investors. They just buy these things and don't sell them. Right. And, it, and it, in fact, this is the case in other asset classes as well, in multi tenant industrial and, you, and, and, and even in office, and you name it. There's just these families that have, and, and I think one of the insights for me was like realizing, oh, actually there's these families exist all over the country. It's not just Southern California. It's just a smart way of doing business. Uh, and yet the real estate private equity model, the model of like w where sponsors go raise money from third, from outside investors just ignores that. It's, it's like the opposite of that. And it just drives me insane. So, um, so our model at adaptive from, very early on was, and this is influenced by some of the investors we were lucky enough to run across and my thoughts about different experiences that I had. Our goal was buy good stuff, you know, renovate it so that it, we'd like to own it long-term, fill it with good tenants, manage it ourselves so that we were all over the asset and just own it. And over time you refinance and pull some capital out and return it to the, to the investors. But like, that's how we've done business. Uh, we, I haven't sold a renovated building since 2014. So that's just, that's, that, and, 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 and the investors are on board with that. And that's, that's where the capital comes from. And that's just what we do. Um, so uh, as discussed, that's very different from the IRR based flipping model. And so a big part of what we were doing with the cohort was to start to um, 
inculcate into them this new way of thinking about the world. And this is an incentives question as well. So, you know, one of the challenges I think that drive a lot of people to this real estate private equity flipping model is the promote is tied to IRR. They want to hit their promote. Yeah. So it's, yeah, they can, want to my, flip it as quickly as possible. So how do you solve yeah. that? I mean, look, my entire career in one way can be viewed as one gigantic marshmallow test, right? <laughs> because like we're, when we finish these rehabs, we are in the promote. So at any time, I mean, now would be a bad time to push the button because obviously interest rates are up and therefore values are a little bit challenged right now. But like um, at any point, I could push the button, sell the whole thing and realize a ton of uh, cash. I mean, I would pay a lot of taxes and piss off a bunch of investors and pay tons of uh, transaction costs and you name it, but I could do it. And so like from the very beginning, my career has been about like not pushing that button because it is wrong in my opinion to push it. And so, um, so that's like, so, so yeah, so then, so then how do you create an incentive structure that rewards that? That's really your question, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, one of the problems that we think we're solving is that there's a lot of investors that understand what Moses just articulated. And if they saw a path to getting on this long-term model, they would take it. But there's not alignment at every step along the way, right? And so we had to find investors that were long-term. We had to find operators that really believe in that long-term model. And then we have to create a structure that reinforces that long-term model. Well, and, and we have to pick ultimate. assets. We have to pick assets right. that that reflect a long-term. Like the thing that you buy if you're trying to lipstick and sell it on quickly is very different from the thing that you right. buy if you're intending to own it for decades. Sorry to interrupt you, Red. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And we could go a step further and say the way that you renovate those assets is different based on the model. And so the, the hard part, you know, if you're a 35 year old leaving a real estate private equity business, um, the probability that you have the capital base that would support that, the track record that people could believe in, you understand and can set up a structure that um, is aligned through that full chain is very, very low. And so that's a lot of what, you know, Reseed is doing is, providing, you know, we, we've got long duration, very long duration capital. Obviously, we believe in the, in the long-term model. That's how Moses and I got uh, connected. And then we've set up structures where we are providing capital to operating partners that gives them the ability to think long-term. And then, you know, we have the, the tricks in the operating document that allow them, you know, we can talk about promote crystallization, but every part of the operating agreement really is enforcing this long-term viewpoint. And I just want to step in, Brad, and say, um, one of the reasons that this was so appealing and we got so many applications, including from people who are much more senior than we were expecting. I mean, we had some really senior people apply actually. Um, and I think a large part of the appeal is that, um, people, realize how screwed it up, how screwed up it is to try to build a business where you're reliant on promotes at all times, on on realizing promotes. It's like, how do you staff a business where your AUM is bouncing up and down because you bought a bunch of stuff, then you renovate it, then you have to sell it. Like you're just, and and by the way, the renovating and the retenanting and all that stuff, that is the hard money. 
That's the hard, that's like the, the easy money is earned when you just got a nice building and the rents are going up and the value is compounding. It's like, so when you're doing this business where you're constantly highly levered, flipping in and out of things and doing the hardest part of the job over and over and over again, you're like creating an, an, just an insanely challenging uh, environment in which to operate. Yes. And so with us coming and saying, look, there's a different way of doing this where you sort of can calmly build a, a great portfolio of assets that are conservatively capitalized with long-term investors. You know that you're, you don't know how quickly your AUM is going to grow because that's like sort of dependent on the market, et cetera. But you know that you're on a one way, you know, you're, the curve goes in one direction. Like as long right. as you do what you're supposed to do and keep turning the crank, your business is going to grow every year and you're going to build a lot of wealth for yourself and your family. There's a couple important things you're doing just to, to, to make it concrete to solve this problem. One, you are paying these operators a salary, not a lot of money, but some base comp so they can live while they're starting to build their portfolios. And two, right, you mentioned it, this idea of promote crystallization that they don't have to actually sell the asset to realize a air quotes promote that you can do some assessment of the value of the asset after it's gone through whatever value add and attribute that to them. Is that fair? That's uh, spot on. That's exactly right. So uh, you, Brad, I want to, I want to, sorry, I want to hit one other uh, uh, important please. piece. Okay. So um, mechanically, if you are running a, one of these, one of these, um, real estate operations um, and your investors require, your investors typically require a co-invest from you. Understandably, they want you to have skin in the game. So if you're going to raise whatever, 10 million of equity, like in theory, they would like you to put up a million bucks of your own money to put up 10% of the, of the capital. And therefore they feel like you have skin in the game. Right. Um, the problem as a long-term holder is um, unless the fees that you're going to earn from the deal materially exceed your co-invest. What happens is you stop being able to do deals pretty quickly once you run out of bankroll. Because from your perspective as the operator, each deal you're doing is cash flow negative. Like you have to put in a bunch of money and you don't get that much back out. So your bankroll is being depleted. By the way, at the same time that you're trying to live and like support your family and everything. Right. So that's an inc that is another thing that drives people towards selling. It's because they, because of that the, 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 that that fee balance as I like to call it. Um, so part of what's going on with, at Reseed is that we are providing up to a hundred percent of the co-invest, which allows the operator to then to, to then earn more in fees than they're having to put into the deal, and that allows them to scale infinitely. They're not dependent on the size of their own bankroll uh, to keep growing. Awesome. Um so I do want to talk a little bit about the future. Uh, I am assuming there's going to be another cohort. Is there going to be another cohort? And what learnings did you get from the first cohort that is going to inform the next one? Yeah, so there's definitely going to be another cohort. The exact timing um, is unclear at this point. So what we recognize is that in our business, we have these eight operators and they have to be successful right? For receipts to be successful. Right. And it's, it's an interesting time in the market where there's not a lot of transaction volume. 
And so uh, at some point, probably the second half of 2024 is when we will do another cohort. It likely will be a combination of multifamily as well as multi-tenant industrial. So that will be uh, a change. And that's really more of a response of wanting to build a portfolio and have some diversity as opposed to uh, a learning. I think, you know, what are some of the learnings from uh, the first experience? I think that, you know, one of the, the learnings is that we have in some ways found product market fit. Right. And that there is demand for what we're offering. And so now we have to think a lot about scale. But if I could, you know, one of the things we realized is that after everyone left launch week, we went through and we started this exercise called the buy box, which is going and trying to look at each market and define what our you know, unlevered yield on costs should be by market. Now that we have all of that infrastructure in place, we actually are going to do a lot of that work before we actually select the cohort, just to make sure that there's total alignment kind of going into uh, into launch week. And we're we're thankful that we feel like we're very aligned with their operators. But you know, you, you learn in every business, and that's certainly something that we feel like moving that early in the process makes a ton of sense. Right. So that way, you're avoiding a scenario where you bring in an operator from, I don't know, just pick a place, Des Moines, Iowa, and they say, hey, I should be able to go out and do deals out of six. And the capital markets, people you're talking to are saying, no, I really want a seven to invest in Des Moines. You got to get that alignment from the beginning. Yeah, I want to I want to add also, though, that um, there's there's two different uh, there's two different issues uh, in what you just said. One is so it's true that we are talking to the capital and trying to understand what they're expecting. But one of the things that I've learned in our business, and I think that this is like really like a is fundamental, is that um, I had the view when I started that there were these like um, the platonic ideal of the allocator sitting on top of a hill and and we as the operators were bringing them our deals and they were conducting rational risk reward analysis of all the opportunities and systematically building a portfolio the way that like a super smart college endowment would let's say right in real life um operators can shape their investors return expectations to a large extent like they're depending on us to tell them what's a good deal to some level to some to some degree and so it's not just a question of matching the allocators uh, requirements to the deals that the operators can uncover it's also determining for Rhett and me what we think is a good deal because that will influence what the investors think as well Right. If you're talking Plato, the allocators are the ones in the cave. They're not the ones on the hill. So how has the capital markets reaction been? I mean, I assume you're having a lot of conversations. I mean, Rhett, Moses combined, you have extraordinary LP relationships. You know, what has the capital markets reaction been to this? Well, first I'd say it's early because we're still, uh, we haven't done a, a, a deal yet on this platform. I mean, Moses and I have obviously done a lot of deals. Uh, uh, my dog is barking in the background, by the way. Uh, you, you, you want to start that over? Uh, sure. So tell, tell us a little bit about what the capital markets reaction has been here. 
Yeah, so I would say first it's, it's early um, and that we are, you know, we just got this cohort up and running. We're just now um, underwriting transactions and we actually have uh, our first transaction under contract. But so far, the response has been very positive. We really, uh, we think about kind of a couple different buckets of capital. The first bucket is, you know, somewhat a little bit more institutional in nature in terms of uh, we have a fund that's a long duration evergreen fund that puts capital on the balance sheet of operating partners, as Moses mentioned earlier, provides co-GP capital. And we, we actually raised more money than we originally expected. And, and we've had uh, significant interest in that vehicle. And then, then there's a group of investors that are largely interested in investing at the asset level. And, you know, our response, you know, we talked earlier about the response to the, to the operator side once we launched the business. But um, I think we have, you know, something like 1,100 people on that list um, that's expressed interest in being you know, direct investors. So at this point, the, you know, the capital response has been very favorable, uh, but we have a long way to go. Awesome. So I want to actually look a little further into the future and think about what this looks like after your you know, third, fourth cohorts, you have operators in a lot of different markets now that are all sourcing deals. They're using standardized underwriting, standardized reporting, a standardized technology stack. They have access to your network of LPs. Um, when I wrote my deep dive into Reseed, I looked at this and said, this looks like a 21st century gray star. This is a basically a decentralized development firm, you know, I'd love your reaction to that, you know, and that being a more apt analogy than say Y Combinator for real estate, which has a lot of differences to what the tech accelerators do. Would love your reaction to kind of the, the decentralized Graystar, the decentralized Heinz comparison. Um, let me, let me, let me start and then actually uh, be interesting to see if our, uh, if our thoughts align here. For me, I'm a little hesitant about those analogies because it's it's extremely important to me that the operators feel like they're building their own freestanding real estate platforms. So while we are making a, a large effort to standardize and systematize wherever possible, because of course that's the only way to manage a situation where you have 20 or 30 operators out there bringing you deals, um, it's very, it, we want them, we do not want them to feel like they're part of the Borg. Like right. it's on them. Like we can provide, you know, we can provide learning and teaching and we can help with some setup and, and structuring and all that stuff. And we're obviously we're providing capital, but fundamentally they are building their own businesses. And in some ways, like a very good outcome from, for, for us would be to have one or more of these people build like enormous businesses. And that it is likely if they do that, that at some point the LP, the terms that they will be able to extract from LP, uh, from LPs as a result of their track record will uh, not be particularly appealing from our perspective. Hmm. And that's okay. Like we're happy to keep in that scenario. We're happy to keep providing the GP capital and like, let them go raise a bunch of LP from, from people who are a sovereign wealth fund or what have you. Exactly. You know, or, or yeah, you, you name it. So, um, so, so we want, so from the very beginning, we want the operators to really feel ownership of their businesses. It's not called like reseed San Diego, 
right? Like there's a business in San Diego that is a reseed sort of affiliate, but it is their business. Right. You want them to maintain their entrepreneurial identities. That's key. For sure. That's right. I think the other thing, in a lot of ways, reseed is just taking parts of other businesses that we've seen and we're bringing that to the real estate world, right? So I think the Y Combinator, the analogy is really around the cohort, you know, bringing people together at the same time, learning from each, from each other, and hopefully that community drives value. But to your point, Brad, in your article, that kind of falls apart when you start thinking about the way you generate returns and what the return distribution should look like. And then the, you know, the gray star analogy is probably much more applicable in terms of the day-to-day -day operating and the way that we look at real estate assets. Great. So Moses, uh, Moses, I'd like to turn to you for a second. Um, you know, you have almost, I, I think, dual roles in some ways. You're a part of Reseed, obviously. You have your own real estate development and investment firm, but you're also a social media personality. You've started reconvene. Uh, you know, you are one of the leading voices in the real estate Twitter community. Uh, how do you, one, how do you balance all those different things? And two, how do they tie together? Is there an overarching strategy about how these media properties you're creating tie back into your real estate business? I mean, are you aiming to be more of a Barry Sternlicht or a Barry Diller here? <laughs> Um, I wish that there was some well thought out strategy that I was uh, operating against here. Um, and, uh, and the answer is that there is not. Um, what, what I think, where I'm coming from is as follows. I did not have a mentor in this business. I've learned a lot from a lot of people, principally um, my earliest few LPs, but also uh, management clients, brokers. I mean, I, I, and, and, and at the time that we were starting, which was uh, back in early 2008, there was nowhere near as much media. There weren't as many books and podcasts and all that stuff. But to the extent that I could find them, I was I was I was hungrily devouring everything that was even tangentially related to the business of raising money from other people and investing it in apartment buildings and etc. So um, so we built the business without a ton of guidance. Like my dad didn't know how to didn't teach me how to do this right. Um, right. And that's cool because uh, we ended up, I think, with a highly differentiated view, part of which we've already discussed during this conversation, but also uh, extending to things like what do you actually do with a building once you buy it, right? Which we haven't touched on, but right. like our style of gut rehab, uh, I mean, it, it has, uh, without uh, wanting to sound immodest, it has been copied to, to some extent in LA. So it's not like totally unique anymore. But for a long time, we were able to buy buildings off the MLS and just like win public auctions for them because our strategy for what to do with buildings was so differentiated, right? And that's because like no one told us what to do. So we just like confronted with a bunch of problems and opportunities sort of made a bunch of little choices and some of them were smart and some of them were dumb and we didn't repeat the dumb ones and we tried some other things and like got to a differentiated playbook. Right. Okay. So, um, and along the way we made a ton of mistakes. I mean, not just in terms of what we did to buildings, but like, for example, we did, uh, I think we renovated like 30 buildings on a fee only basis. Mm. Okay where we got like a hundred grand or 150 grand to do our thing to like a 20 unit building, which no is equity. insane. Yeah. No equity. 
Like that is, I mean, and that was like, at the time it made sense. We needed cash and we were bootstrapping our property management business and neither my partner nor I were rich. Like, so, so we made the decision that made sense. We started a brokerage. So for a while we had agents helping other people buy apartment buildings and we were taking, we were clipping parts of their commissions. Like those were in retrospect, not good decisions. If you're trying to build a real estate, uh, private equity firm or syndicating firm, whatever you want to describe what we do. Um, but we didn't know any better. So we were just like making these decisions. Okay. So, uh, and I was broke <laughs> uh, for a lot of it, right? Like, so we, we, there's no salary and you're like having to make co-invests and live in an expensive area. So like we just, it was really painful and we made a ton of mistakes. Okay. So I continue to this day to have an enormous amount of empathy for anyone who is walking that path. That is a hard thing to do. Okay. And so you can see, I mean, yes, I derive material benefit from my participation in social media. Uh, I, from, from running, we make money running reconvene. I mean, you know, obviously this reseed opportunity would never have come to me if it weren't for the social media stuff. Um, and there's some things about my social media platform that enable reseed in a way that would not be possible without, without my platform. Um, but for me, what ties it all together is really this sort of abiding empathy for people trying to do this hard thing. And I like teaching them and talking to them about the, the dumb, dumb shit that we did and how not to make those mistakes and the different trade-offs and in terms of how you structure things and think about deals and all that stuff. Like I like that. Um, and, and I'm passionate about it. And you can, as you can probably tell from how I'm, I'm speaking right now. So, um, so uh, that is what ties it all together. So I'm happy to keep teaching people. And then a bunch of opportunities happen to flow from my teaching. So, so Rhett, when you came to Moses and told him about Reseed, you were pitching him on a product, on an idea that was tailor-made to help Moses 10 years ago. Exactly. I mean, I went to, I mean, if we go back to the origin story, I went to Moses in a prior life and said, I want to deploy significant capital in your strategy. And he said, great, I don't need the capital and the market is capacity constrained, so we can't do it. Right. And so the natural you know, evolution from that was saying, okay, how do we build a bunch of adaptives over the U.S. so that we actually can deploy significant capital in capacity constrained uh, strategies? It's a very inspiring story from uh, from from both of you. Um, I do want to move to our lightning round where uh, we have some quick hit questions. Um, so, shall we uh, shall we jump in? I'm grateful for you uh, providing these uh, in advance. Sorry if I'm spoiling the surprise here, but like, <laughs> I, I looked at your email and I was like, oh my god! Like, usually I'm fine to just bullshit. But these are actually good questions, so I wanted to think about them. So, so I apologize if they sound a little bit more uh, rehearsed than than maybe some of your other guests. You know, I've been on enough podcasts where they've asked me off the cuff, like, you know, if I were a type of cheese, what type of cheese would I be? <laughs> that you know, I, I I tried to do our guests the courtesy of sending these along in advance. So, uh, question number one: Tell us about one startup developer or entrepreneur you're watching and why. And you don't both have to answer this if you don't want to. You can. You don't have. I'll start by so we can create a cadence. Um, one of our investors is a guy named Bill Smith. He founded a firm called Shipped. They went from 
zero to selling to Target for over $500 million in, in I think it was 36 months. Close friend of mine. So I'm always watching what Bill is doing. And, I'll, and he's and got an go. incredible business now called Landing, uh, based right. in Birmingham, your hometown. That's exactly that's exactly yeah. right. And, and for the record, I, I've met Bill through Rhett and have come to, I uh, really appreciate him as well. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to mention Brent Bishore, um, whose uh, writings I first came across on Twitter. And uh, it was amazing to find someone who had sort of independently come to the same conclusions about the advisability of buying good stuff. Uh, capitalizing it conservatively and owning it forever. So it was like, it was like this moment of being like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like there's someone else who is sort of similarly thinking about the world. Um, and, and then the fact that he's done such a good job of explaining his viewpoint publicly and therefore attracting the kind of people uh, who he wants to do business with and repelling the kind of people who he doesn't want to do business with uh, is also incredibly admirable and something that I've tried to copy. Awesome. Next question. What's one real estate related law or policy you could change today if you could? So for me, um, I think every market's different and it's hard to generalize on you know what the right policy is uh, at the asset level. But I would implement mandatory timelines for responding to building permits or just permits. Investors want certainty and that would provide a lot of clarity. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to, I'm sort of going to talk philosophically for a second. In my opinion, the way real estate is regulated right now is reflects a sort of a war between people who um, would like it to act like a market and people who would like to, to wring all of the market out of the market, if that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, so I think a lot of the problems that we have around affordability and you name it come from the fact that we have, we're trying to impede the market. And like the market has demonstrated, I'm just looked outside because there's parking out there, like cars, toothbrushes, you name it. The market provides an enormous amount of customer choice at all price points. And it's a miracle. And like, we've just, for whatever ideological reasons, decided not to apply the market to this incredibly fundamental thing, which is where we all live. Uh, and so that's the change that I would make. Everything that pushes us towards being more of a market. Right. Certainly you see that problem in your backyard in Los Angeles in a big way. When we're recording this podcast in the 2030s, assuming there's still podcasts in the 2030s, uh, what's the most important thing we'll be talking about? I, for me, I think it's to be the role of technology in our lives, not real estate specific, but uh, I know I have four kids. And so just grappling on a daily basis with, um, how technology can help them and hurt them and what it means for their future and their pace of learning and how they learn. Uh, it's hard for me to see that that's not, you know, front and center in the 2030s. Yeah. And I, and I, just to sort of bring that back to real estate, I would say that, um, I, it feels to me like the pace of technological change is accelerating and, and, and potentially, you know, depending on what your views are around AI, it may be, it may be on the cusp of accelerating in ways that we could sort of probably can't even comprehend. And so uh, I am both excited about and also nervous about uh, the implications for all different kinds of real estate. Like you name it, I think life is going to look extraordinarily different uh, in the 2030s than it looks uh, uh, today. 
And so one of the reasons I like multifamily, and actually we haven't talked about it, but small bay industrial too, is that to me, those feel like the uses that are most likely to survive the kind of technological change that I think is coming for us. Love it. Um, so those, I know this is close to your heart, you know, help out real estate innovators, developers who are just getting started a few years back. If you had to do it over again, building your development business, both of you, um, What's one thing you do different and one thing you do the same? Rhett, do you want to answer it from an allocator's perspective and I'll, and I'll, uh, and I'll answer it from an operator's perspective. Sure. Yeah. So for an operator, the, this, the single dumbest thing we did was not include a promote crystal crystallization clause in our, uh, operating agreements. And it's funny. I didn't even know that that, like, no one told me that there was such a thing as a promote crystallization clause. I literally was at YPO a few years ago, talking to a guy who I've come to know actually through Twitter. And he was like, yeah, we have this thing in our operating groups. And I'm like, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> and, um, uh, and so we should have done that. Um, in effect, what we've done by not including it is sort of deferred cash flow in the short and medium term in exchange for a larger share of the upside, which I think actually like is a nice bet from my perspective. And the, but, but it's also like, it's going to, it's going to benefit my children more than it's going right. to benefit me in some ways. Yeah, I think the advice I'd give is really think very hard about the game that you're playing, what the economics of that game could be in the duration of that opportunity. So if I think back to, we made some really good investments and in, in the GFC for, that were, you know, we, we bought debt on office buildings that turned to be very high RRs. But in reality, you know, what you really want to do is own equity and great assets that you can compound for decades. I'd really, really extend my horizon um, and think about that, you know, always in the back of my mind is thinking about what game am I playing? What are the economics and how long can I play this game? Absolutely. So another one, probably close to what you're thinking about now. What is one city or place you would bet on over the next 10 years? I'm sitting in Boulder, Colorado. It's pretty hard not to bet on uh, this town, but if I had to go away from that, I was in Nashville this week. Uh, they certainly have some supply issues in our world, multifamily, but uh, very high quality of life, very pro-business, uh, a, a dynamic city with a great education, um, great education opportunity. So I would certainly bet on Nashville long-term. And I'm going to say something that's, uh, uh, going to be surprising, uh, maybe surprising in light of my recent Twitter postings, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and the reason I'm going to say Los Angeles is despite the fact that our governance is like effed beyond belief right now, uh, uh, in so many different ways, uh, that it's not even worth getting into. Um, I think that the coming changes to, uh, our civilization as a result of technology are likely going to allow people to make choices about where they live that are like less tied to work. And so uh, a place that has like perfect weather all the time and is near the beach and where you can go skiing pretty easily. Like I expect that there's going to be, there will always be wealthy people on a relative basis, wealthy people who would like to live in Southern California. Absolutely. No better weather in the world. Last question. What's your favorite app on your home screen? We're about to have a big storm this weekend in Colorado. 
and I am totally obsessed with every morning waking up and looking at open snow to see what the conditions are going to uh, be for the next few weeks. So it's definitely open snow. And mine, which is my favorite app and my wife's uh, least favorite is, uh, is X or Twitter. <laughs> uh, I, I get that. I appreciate that complicated relationship myself. Um, Moses, Rhett, Reseed is one of the most interesting businesses in my view that's been launched in real estate in the past several years. And one of the reasons I really love it uh, is because it opens opportunity in this industry. And you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how the analogy to Y Combinator isn't perfect. And that's very true because incentives work differently. The business is different. But one thing that is similar that these accelerator programs did over the past 20 years in the tech industry, and I saw that firsthand, is it democratized a lot of access where previously it was just about you had to know the right DC, you had to have the right background, you had to go to the right school. It's opened up a ton in the past two decades. And I see Reseed doing much of the same thing in real estate. And I think that is absolutely wonderful and critical for the industry. So thank you both so much for what you're doing. And thank you for spending the time here with me and being so generous with your time uh, here on the Thesis Driven Podcast. Uh, thank you. And, yeah, thank you. And, and thank you for being such a, uh, let's call it a thoughtful chronicler of, uh, of the goings on in this, in this amazing, uh, amazing business that we're all in. Well, I want to keep on top of it. Uh, but thank you all so much for joining today. And thanks to our audience for tuning in.